Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Lacey's Missing. Some murder cases never die, pun intended. One such case is the murder of Lacey Peterson. Lacey disappeared on Christmas Eve, 2002. Her torso and the body of her unborn child, Connor, would wash up on shore four months later. Her husband and the father of her child would be ultimately tried, convicted, and sentenced to die for the brutal crime. Fast forward to this past fall, when Scott's appeal of the verdict and sentence comes down. The verdict standing, but the penalty reversed. New York Times best-selling author Michael Fleeman, who wrote the book Lacey, Inside the Lacey Peterson Murder, joined me as Murder Most Foul looked into this decades-old murder case once more. You know, Lacey's family gets a phone call in the evening from Scott Peterson. They said, you know, looks like Lacey's missing. And uh, her mom and her stepfather are stunned and concerned. And this is uh, a cool, foggy, kind of drizzly evening. Um, and Lacey is about seven months pregnant. And she's gone, left behind her purse, her wallet, keys, car is still there. Um, nobody seems to know where she is. And so the search begins really that night. Uh, the home is in a very nice kind of suburban area, but it backs up against some kind of rural park-like uh, places and a stream bed and, you know, lots of places where, where you could kind of beat the bushes and look. And so that's what they did. And it, the search literally began with just kind of the neighbors, Scott and her family. So tell us a little bit about Scott Peterson. Yeah, Scott was, um, you know, young, good-looking guy and from day one, we kept uh, comparing him to Ben Affleck. He looks just like Ben Affleck and had a kind of cocky charm. Uh, he grew up in San Diego area, met Lacey at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo while they were students, got married, and um, they moved to her hometown, which was Modesto. And he worked as a uh, sales rep for a Spanish-based fertilizer company. Um, and which is big and the Modesto's in California's Central Valley, breadbasket of America, lots of farms, agricultural businesses. And so he drove kind of around uh, the Fresno Modesto area, selling fertilizer, irrigation equipment, uh, stuff like that. Made a decent living. I think they were saying he's making about 60 grand a year. Uh, Lacey had worked part-time as a, a teacher. And then I think she, near the end of her uh, pregnancy, had uh, had quit and they were getting ready to 
to have a baby, you know, I, I, they had already decorated the, the nursery and they were uh, ready to go. They were kind of the sort of all Modesto couple. He had two passions, golf and fishing. Um, uh, he had been a very good golfer and in high school he golfed uh, on the same team as Phil Mickelson. And even uh, when he went to college, uh, Mickelson was on the golf team and he took one look at Phil and said, you know, there's no way I'm going to make it as a pro golfer. And then later he got into fishing and he had bought a couple weeks before this, he had bought a little fishing boat. Uh, and he says that on Christmas Eve day, he had uh, towed his uh, little fishing boat to Berkeley Marina on the San Francisco Bay, uh, launched the boat and uh, was floating around out there during the day fishing, uh, had a little receipt from the boat launch ramp, and then drove home sometime that afternoon with his boat, came home and found Lacey missing and her stuff still there. And uh, when uh, Scott returned, of course, the cops were already there um, conducting a search, and they they didn't actually uh, consider him a suspect at first. Any cop, good cop, knows you you start a case with in concentric circles, and you start as close to the victim as possible, and then work your way out. The closest person would be her husband. Um, but you know, in the early days, we don't even know where she is right we there's no blood there like you said there's no obvious knife or gun sitting there um no sign of a struggle no broken chairs uh, no broken glass uh, um so we don't even know if she's alive or dead so it's it's hard to tell what's going on here um and how much you know what does scott know and what do you not what does he not know in the beginning he seemed sympathetic enough and and one of his biggest supporters and defenders was Lacey's brother. And, you know, he would very quickly knock down any kind of speculation that, oh, you know, Scott's involved in this. But as the days went on, um, Scott's behavior became suspicious. And, you know, years later, um, they made a lot of this in a movie called book called Gone Girl, which is the first half of that book and movie is based on the Lacey Peterson case. And we're here, this sympathetic, good looking young husband whose wife is missing and he's coming under kind of this whisper campaign, uh, maybe has something to do with it. And, he, and he's not fitting the, the, the preconceived image we have of what a, how a, how a husband should react. Yet that presupposes we know how somebody should act, you know? And is he acting standoffish and weird because he's involved somehow? Or is he acting standoffish and weird because he feels very uncomfortable being thrust into the public eye and being accused of such horrible things? And, and uh, so his behavior was certainly in the beginning suspicious to some, but open to interpretation. But um, entering very early in the investigation was Scott Peterson's mistress, Amber Fry. Privately came to police very quickly, about five days later. I think it was January 30th. Um, and she had seen this news coverage of missing Lacey Peterson and her husband, Scott. And she didn't even know he was married, right? Amber is this... Uh, Single mom, 27 years old, lives in Fresno, which is, you know, hour or so south of Modesto. And uh, she had been having what she thought was just a relationship, not an affair, with this good-looking 
uh, fertilizer salesman who would come down and swing through Fresno on his thing. And, and they even went to a public kind of formal event and were photographed. You had, that's a very famous picture now, but they, you know, it wasn't like he was trying to hide anything. And she's like, you know, holy cow, he's, he's married and his, and his uh, wife's missing, I, you know. And uh, so she goes to the police privately, but the police don't say anything. Um, and if you look in the book, uh, you know, you see the, the, the clues and the, the, the police will start hedging, you know, well, we, Scott Peterson is not a suspect at this time. They don't explain why, but at the time they knew about Amber Fry and the affair. And so um, publicly, we don't know, but privately, yes, she entered the picture within days after Lacey's disappearance. Um, but Amber Fry was much more than just a cooperating witness, wasn't she? And that they they made her a full-fledged undercover operative and they began tapping her phone uh, and recording and monitoring her phone calls with Scott. You know, Scott does not know at this point that Amber is working with police. So he's still calling her after his wife has disappeared and he supposedly uh, my printer is going. I don't know if you're hearing that. Uh, hear okay. um, after his wife disappears, he's still continuing this, you know, relationship with his mistress. And, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's lying to her and he's lying to his family and he's lying to his in-laws and, you know, he's lying to uh, the public and, uh, so, yeah, that was a big part of the case. He never says anything, uh, you know, specifically incriminating, like, you know, I killed her and dumped her in the bay. So we're into January now, and there still is no trace of the missing, very pregnant Lacey Peterson. So the authorities are um, investigating the probable scene of the crime, I assume. Uh, they are searching the house. Um, they also searched a storage facility where he kept his boat and his supplies and samples and things from his sales business. Uh, we know that at this point. The police are secretly monitoring his phone calls. And there are whispers, right? There's, there's rumors. Um, I think the National Enquirer uh, begins to nose around Fresno. And we start hearing rumors and innuendo that he had had or is, had had an affair at the time of her disappearance and who is this other woman and if anything the pressure is actually mounting on amber uh because reporters are sniffing around and and you know at the same time scott is not talking to the media that much uh They'll have like a candlelight vigil, please look for Lacey, but he won't speak, you know, he'd be kind of off in the corner. Um, and he does a, a couple of interviews, and most famously is this Diane Sawyer interview, which was just a, a train wreck. You know, he, he, I think the idea was he was going to come clean and, you know, she would ask him a straightforward question like. I think everybody sitting at home wants the answer to the same question. Did you murder your wife? No, no, I did not. And I had absolutely nothing to do with her disappearance. And, and he used the word murder. And yeah, I mean, that is a, a possibility. 
Um, it's not one we're ready to accept, and it creeps in my mind late at night and early in the morning. And during the day, all we can think about is the right resolution is to find her well. But as you noticed during the interview, he had not yet talked about something. You haven't mentioned your son. Mm. That was, it's so hard. And so Scott is coming under through January, February, um, uh, a lot of pressure. And then in January, Amber finally comes, uh, goes public. It becomes, it becomes a, a real media circus at that point. Um, but Amber, with her trusty attorney at her side, Gloria Allred, uh, really doesn't um, add anything uh, publicly um, to you know any suspicion one way or another on Scott Peterson or anyone else, does she? Well, she gives a yeah. I, she doesn't say she does this big press conference. Um, she does confirm the affair. She says, "I thought he was unmarried." Uh, I'm not taking any questions. Please leave me alone. Don't sell my story. I've got a young child, two-year-old at home, you know, preserve my privacy. Uh, but she doesn't say anything about the secret recordings. And weirdly, even as she's going forward, um, Scott is compulsively calling her, you know, and, and, you know, which isn't too bright. And he still somewhat seems somewhat obsessed with her. So parallel uh, with the media circus, the police are continuing to search uh, both for uh, Lacey hoping she's alive, and there, of course, are numerous sightings all over the country, um, but also searching the various waterways in the area for um, for a body. And, of course, uh, the news reports of the time, they do find a couple of possibilities and they, you know, unleash sonar, but they, again, come up, um, you know, empty-handed until uh, April 13th, 2003. Yeah, so it's, a, it's just a grisly, awful, awful discovery uh, in April, which is now, what, four over four months, almost five months after she goes missing. Uh, some people are walking their dogs at a dog park um, in Richmond, which is not far from Berkeley in San Francisco Bay. And uh, they see washed up on the rocks a fetus. Um, horrific, horrific discovery. Umbilical cord is still attached. It's actually in, in uh, surprisingly good shape. Uh, the next day, an even more horrific discovery uh, about a mile away in the same area along the San Francisco Bay, not far from Berkeley Marina, they find what's left of a human torso. No arms, no legs, uh, no head. Uh, uh, the internal organs uh, have been, are gone. The body's in horrible shape. Looks like it's been in the water for months. And so of course everybody's, well, is this Lacey and, and, her, and her unborn child? And as you point out, um, the, the baby's body was in, in fairly um, good shape, but um, Lacey's um, remains were, were quite deteriorated. You know, you leave a body underwater long enough, parts float away. And um, I think the big findings or the lack of findings, number one, they couldn't find, they, they were through DNA able to confirm it was her and her baby um, uh, pretty quickly. As in, but they could not determine a cause of death. It just wasn't 
enough left of her to, you know, to make that kind of uh, uh, determination. Um, I think the big unknown, the big question is something to be debated at trial was the fetus. Um, had it somehow, it was in much better shape than Lacey was. And uh, what was the timeline, right? Why had the baby been born and kept with somebody? Was she, were they dumped at separate times? Um, or had the uterus protected the baby under the water and then as she decomposed, it floated away, but was in better shape. That would become an issue later on. And once the uh, police uh, finally, unfortunately, had a body, they went right after Scott Peterson, didn't they? Right away, they, they went looking for him. Um, and they had to go look because he wasn't in Modesto. Um, police had not been keeping him under surveillance uh, at this point. Remember, now we're talking four months after Amber Fry came forward. He never said anything overtly uh, incriminating in the wiretap conversations with her. So they were just kind of, cops just kind of waiting for development. Well, once the, the bodies were found and identified, they went looking for Scott. And uh, he's from San Diego, the La Jolla area. And, and uh, they, they found him down there near his uh, childhood home. Yeah, well, by now, um, Lacey's family was had dropped all pretense of supporting Scott. Um, once they found out about Amber Fry, that was it. Uh, they they were no longer going to voice their support. And then when Scott is arrested, you know, he's famously dyed his hair. He had those blonde highlights. He had fifteen grand on him in cash. Uh, he had his brother's driver's license. His car was all loaded up. Uh, San Diego's like, you know, 20 miles from the Mexico border. Um, you know, uh, police were afraid that he was getting ready to, to flee the country. So Scott is arrested and he's charged with capital murder. And um, at the trial, the prosecutors really had very little in the way of physical evidence to actually tie Scott Peterson uh, to the death of Lacey Peterson. Um, I think there was one little piece of evidence that they were actually able to present. It, there was only one piece of, you know, forensic evidence, um, hard evidence, and that was in his boat in that storage facility. It was a pair of pliers, and in the pliers was a hair and DNA showed that that hair belonged to Lacey. Now that doesn't look good, but it's his boat, it's her boat. I mean, you know, uh, stuff happens. And so there's that. There were some indications that maybe he was building concrete anchors, but you know, he's a fisherman, so he makes anchors. Um, and, uh, that's about it. Um, beyond that, it's just his caddish behavior, right? It's his affair. It's his line. It's, it's the uh, 15 grand in the car. That's not a lot, you know? And, and, you know, people who followed the O.J. Simpson trial, they had DNA, they got blood everywhere, and he got acquitted. So, you know, to, to, to hang your, your entire case literally on this very thin hair is is not a lot and they're up against a 
celebrity lawyer, Mark Garrigus, right? And uh, uh, so it was not a slam dunk. It was a tough it was a tough case, and it was a death penalty case. So the they were seeking the death penalty. So the stakes were extremely high. And as an outsider looking in, I still have many questions um, that were unanswered uh, by testimony at the trial. There were monster-sized holes in the prosecution case. They couldn't say where she died. They couldn't say when she died. They couldn't say how she died. They couldn't say how she ended up in the bay, who put her in the bay. They couldn't even 100% say whether she and the baby died at the same time. She clearly did not leave on her own volition. And keep in mind, this is New Year's, uh, New Year's uh, Christmas Eve day. Uh, she was, uh, they were planning to have a family dinner at their house. She was literally setting the table um, for that dinner uh, that morning. So no, she seven months pregnant. She's not getting a boat, you know. And I, you know, there was some indication she didn't even know he had a boat. But that's that's another kind of point of contention. But no, she had to have been forcibly removed. But there's no signs of struggle anywhere. Just this hair. And for me, really, the biggest question of all was was motive. Um, I, you know, if you have a mistress, you know, again, that makes you a cad, not a killer. Um, there's divorce. I mean, his wife was eight and a half months pregnant, and this is how he decided he was going to get out of a, a marriage that maybe wasn't exciting anymore. Boy, that's mind-boggling for me. Yeah, yeah. So you don't, in California, like you, like you said, you, uh, motive is not an element of a murder charge, but human nature, we all want to know, you know, why right. um and you actually don't even have to have a body uh you don't technically have to show these things but it it really it, you know it, it does leave a gaping hole in your case and so you know they they pressed hard with this uh, reasonable doubt defense um uh, for scott peterson well, regardless of the holes uh, perceived or actual in the case, Scott Peterson was convicted of capital murder and given a death sentence by the uh, the, jur the same jury. They deliberated, I believe, about a week on the guilty verdict uh, and about the same time for the uh, punishment. And uh, so, of course, there's no winners in this. Lacey Peterson and her son, uh, which was named before, uh, she died. It was named Connor. They're both gone. Two families are ripped apart, uh, grieving. They can't even lean on each other for solace and comfort. Uh, really sad all the way around. The two families got together well. They were all looking forward to having this grandchild. And, and, uh, and then by the end, everybody's torn apart. And, 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 uh, you know, it was, it was just tragedy on top of tragedy. For more insight into the actual trial of Scott Peterson, we turn to law professor Stanley A. Goldman of Loyola Marymount University. From October 1996 through November of 2006, Professor Goldman was a legal correspondent and the sole legal editor of the Fox News Channel. In that capacity, he was in the courtroom daily. 
Professor Goldman provides unique insight into the courtroom strategies. Having taught both the lead prosecutor and Peterson's defense attorney, Mark Garagos, in law school. Over his distinguished career, he has logged over 4,000 television and 500 radio appearances. And now, the Murder Most Foul podcast. I was the guy who would be standing there or sitting there sometimes if we got lucky enough and there was a place to sit, um, you know, reporting on things. And, and I'd come on to the night shows at night and sometimes give analysis. And that, I think, was the very beginnings of this reporter analyst business. I mean, for a long, long time, you were either a reporter or an analyst. They were two very distinct uh, uh, categories with a line of demarcation that could not be crossed. And it was around the time I started being a, uh, a reporter that they'd start asking for my analysis as well. Like I'd be on one of these nighttime talk shows. Well, so what do you really think, Stan? You know, the kind of thing we see today, we take for granted, but it was not the beginnings of reporting. It, it was just a, it was something that's only been in the last couple of decades. And by way of your um, law professor hat, you had a leg up on many of the commentators uh, uh, during the trial um, because you were acquainted with uh, parties both on the defense and the prosecution, weren't you? The uh, lead prosecutor in the uh, Lacey Peterson case and the lead defense lawyer, Scott Peterson's lawyer, uh, Mark Garagos. So uh, Rick DeStasso, who was uh, the lead prosecutor, had been a criminal procedure student of mine, and Mark had been an evidence student of mine. And uh, Truth be known, uh, I got to talk to them during the trial and get a lot of interesting information. And every once in a while, I'd get an email from either of them asking me some sort of legal question, as I'd been their professor. And I'd say, well, you know, this, is, this reminds me of the following case. You know, and I just, and we would, I would never report that. Um, you know, so it, it was a very strange, uh, you know, uh, it was a very strange case to be linked uh, into. And uh, of course, I was covering it with some some other people that have come become very famous. One who's now dating Trump Jr., a former prosecutor who was uh, who was uh, covering the case with me. And uh, I always sit next to either her or Gloria Allred, famous lawyer who was sometimes who was representing the, the girlfriend and always would show up uh, for these trials. So uh, and. Gloria Allred was a classmate of mine in law school, so I would sit next to Gloria and we'd chat, or I'd, I'd talk to uh, Kimberly Guilfoy, uh, who was uh, sort of, I can't say attached herself to me, but liked asking me legal questions. We were quite friendly back in those days. Uh, I think she was just stopping being uh, Mrs. Uh, Gavin Newsom at the time. Uh, you know, she's married to the married to the governor of California and now dating the president's son. And I read in a, an account somewhere that you didn't always agree uh, with um, Mark Garagos, uh, his uh, approach uh, to the trial, especially when it came to his um, unique sense of humor and uh, flippancy sometimes uh, at the trial. Isn't that true? Mark and I had disagreements about this. It's not the first trial of Mark's I had I had sat in on. Um, he had had many high-profile cases. Of course, he represented, would represent for a while, um, Michael Jackson, um, uh, until until that until they had, you know, he he with some of the management had a falling out. Uh, he ended up with the Scott Peterson case. Uh, he, he also represented Winona Ryder. I watched that case. She had some small uh, 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 shoplifting I issue, if you recall, and he also makes some similar statements. Uh, uh, Mark and I, I mean, I had 70 jury trials when I was a, a criminal defense lawyer. 
So I know a little about it. I don't know, you know, I haven't done it for a lifetime like Mark has, but we had strategy differences. I, I Mark liked um, and still does, I think, like to make very broad pronouncements about the absolute innocence of his client. I always thought that was, and this is just a friendly uh, professional disagreement. My opinion was that if you promise the jury you're going to prove somebody not guilty, then they might, I'm not saying everyone would, but they might hold you to a higher standard than simply being able to raise a reasonable doubt. And so I always was very concerned about that. Um, I also, you know, too rosy a picture. Uh, also, Mark, who's a very funny guy, uh, Mark kept making jokes during the course of the trial. And uh, for the first, I think that works well in a short trial. And it worked fine because Mark is very clever uh, for the first couple of months of the trial. But I thought when we got beyond the first couple of months, the jury was getting so antsy because they'd been sitting there for so long. They didn't want to hear any, anything humorous. They wanted to, I mean, jokes. I mean, you know, they were obviously, you know, for the, of the moment. I'm not saying he was cracking jokes in the middle of a double murder trial, but he was. He was trying to be humorous and pleasant and funny and charming. I think, I think, it, I think the jury had some, some problems with just anything that was not, just, let's just get the damn thing over with. Let's just get this trial done. Uh, don't waste any time uh, on this. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just had disagreements. And one of the things the defense um, had to overcome uh, was um, Scott Peterson's whole demeanor, uh, his um, his actions uh, while they were still looking for Lacey Peterson, hoping they'd find her alive um, through the time that they after they did find the body, and also his activities that I mean the best you can say really made him look guilty. You do something that suggests a consciousness of guilt. Sometimes they're they're blown out of proportion. Uh, you know, for you know the police the police come up and 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 start questioning you, and the person says, "I'd rather not answer." or I'd rather talk to a lawyer. All of the, uh, if any of those things could be, could be interpreted as a consciousness of guilt. Well, if you had nothing to hide, why not talk to the police? But uh, a consciousness of gift, guilt often refers to trying to destroy evidence, lying about where you were on the night in question, things that even though they don't prove guilt, would, would intimate perhaps someone with a, with a consciousness that they're guilty and trying to act in a sort of a way to cover it up. Then there was the uh, very overt act of the getaway car when he was uh, picked up in San Diego uh, the day uh, to be arrested when uh, the day they found Lacey Peterson's body. And this car was packed with $15,000 in cash, survival gear, and uh, multiple IDs, and for some reason, uh, a good supply of Viagra tablets. He was trying to get out of there. I mean, there's a, there's an example of somebody who believes they they might be arrested. Now, once again, an innocent person might believe that they're being arrested falsely and don't want to have to risk going through a trial that might result in the death penalty. So, but it is definitely the sort of thing that the courts have long ago concluded is admissible and can be considered by the jury. And although um, Lacey's parents long uh, abandoned um, Scott Peterson, um, his parents still uh, were steadfast supporters of his and um, at least, you know, openly, outwardly um, defending his innocence. Isn't that true? I would speak to them quite often, and they absolutely believed their son was innocent. In fact, the reason why they had hired Mark Garagos may not be a well-known story. I don't think I'm 
telling tales out of out of class here. Um, Mark had been a legal analyst doing quite a bit of work to publicize his business in the sense that he wasn't getting paid, I believe. He was just getting asked questions because he was a prominent criminal defense lawyer. And he was on a, I think it was probably CNN. Uh, and he had spoken about the the obvious guilt and the, and the behavior of, of Scott Peterson. And uh, his parents saw it. And they contacted him and said, you know, you, you've got no right to say that about our son. Our son is innocent and this and this and this and this. And he said, well, I really apologize. Why don't you come to my office? Let's talk about it. I'd really like to talk more about it. So they did. And before they left the office, they decided to hire him as their lawyer. Uh, and that's how we ended up taking the case. It was a strange family division. I remember they started out more cordial. It was, uh, I remember describing it as a, I remember describing the preliminary hearing as, as I got on the air a few minutes after I'd, I'd, I'd been in the preliminary hearing to report on it. And I described it as almost a, a macabre uh, kind of uh, wedding in the sense that you had the families on each separate side sitting in, uh, you know, and you'd walk down this aisle in the middle to find a seat and there'd be, you know, the victim's family on one side and the defendant's family on the other side. And, and uh, yes, it was, it was, uh, it was a very, dis it could be very disturbing by the way. I mean, this was a real, and I, I, let me tell you the, to, in my opinion, perhaps the most depressing statistic I, I learned during the, Peterson uh, during the Peterson trial. And it was from some research I did. It turns out that the most dangerous part, the most dangerous period of any uh, American woman's life is in her eighth month of pregnancy. And the danger comes from the father of the, of the to soon to be born child. Um, it, it, there's, there's a, I'm, I'm not saying there's a massive number of them, but there is a depressing number of homicides and attacks against women that take place in the month before they're due to give birth by nervous, angry uh, 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 baby fathers. And it's a very depressing uh, and, and, and kind of shocking statistic. And, I, and one, you know, am I gonna be stuck with this baby for the rest of my life? Why is she doing this to me? Am I gonna have to support this kid till they're 18? I'm now stuck, I'm no longer free. I can't see other women, I can't move, I can't do this, I can't do that. Um, and uh, one does get the impression that that was the motivation in this case. And I speak of, of, of Scott as, as, as if he were guilty. Uh, his conviction was so far upheld by the California Supreme Court. It's not completely over yet, by the way, legally, but, um, but at this point, uh, that, that, that certainly does look like an unfortunately classic form of that kind of horrific murder. So now let's talk about the uh, femme fatale, as it were, Amber Fry. You were in the courtroom uh, for the, her testimony. Uh, tell us what that was like. Well, um, I thought her testimony was devastating. I mean, I hadn't expected it to be uh, as devastating as it was when the trial came. We all knew she was awaited. In fact, it was one of those times when I had a real battle with my employers at the Fox News Channel. Um, once again, that's the first time I've ever told this story, so let me, let me, let me tell it. Uh, and uh, I was, as I was, as I often was, it was just before court at, during the preliminary hearing. Um, it was a very big day in the preliminary hearing because Amber Fry, the girlfriend, former girlfriend of Scott Peterson, was, was due to testify that day at the preliminary hearing. And I was uh, standing in the corridor of the hallway waiting for the parties to walk in not only so I could report on how they looked, but every once in a while somebody would say something to me. 
And sure enough, Rick DeStasso, very nice guy that he was, he turned to me and said, oh, Stan, I haven't mentioned this to anybody yet, but we've decided we're not going to call her at the preliminary hearing and walked on. Well, this was a scoop. I mean, nobody knew that. Everybody, everybody had waited all day, you know, the night expecting Amber Fry to testify. So I went rushing outside, called the producers and said, hey, get me on. I've got a scoop. And what is it? Uh, Amber Fry is not going to testify today. They wouldn't put me on because they had scheduled the entire day of interviews with people to talk about Amber Fry. And they felt that if, if the word got out she wasn't going to testify, it would ruin their day's worth of programming. So why should the real story bother them? Uh, so I never, quite, I never quite forgave them for that. Uh, I just couldn't get on. To, I, I wasn't able to report it the entire day, and she didn't testify. Her testimony at the trial was very compelling about the, the lies Scott had told her. And they're literally at, at, at the memorial for his, his wife and unborn. And he's, he's talking about how he's in Paris and you could hear people like singing hymns or like, and listen to them singing in, Amer in English. You know, it was like, it was just devastating cover up uh, on his part. Um, it, it, it really was, it, it was a, a, a pivotal moment in the trial when she testified because she had believed he was, you know, single and, um, and, um, uh, and, and he had apparently decided he didn't want to be tied to his wife. He, he'd rather have Amber Fry or maybe Justice Freedom. It's hard to tell what it was. But uh, yeah, it was it was very devastating example of motivation and an attempt to cover up that gave the jury a considerable feeling, as it did everyone in the courtroom, I think, that this was a guy. Uh, talk about consciousness of guilt. Uh, this was an example of it. So, are you going to uh, talk to your family about me? Well, I, well, at this point, it's inevitable. It's going to, but I mean. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is obviously, I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, I'm, I'm physically sick on a daily basis and all my energy is working towards finding me, but yes, I have that hope. I mean, I care about you a great deal. You know that. I just have a hard time with knowing that when you have been so deceitful. I know that. I know. And none of this makes sense to me, Scott. Yeah, I know it doesn't. You know, Scott, when people find out, and they will, no one will think your behavior is innocent. Do you understand that? Yeah, I know that. But I had nothing to do with this. So, you know, once we find her... Um, you know, everyone will know that I was not involved in this, and I just, you know, I hope that you um, are not um, involved to any degree. And, and, How, you know. back up, huh? Yeah. Back up to that statement. Yeah. 
probably trying to explain it to you. But, you know, what I mean by that is obviously you're, you're not involved in... But, I mean, I don't want um, you to have any repercussions from people you know. What repercussions? My hands are clean of this, Scott. Oh, I know, and I'm the one that, that lied to you. Exactly. And puts you in this position. Exactly. So where do you think that people are going to think this behavior? They're not going to think your behavior is innocent. No, of course not. No, they won't. You're right. Of course they won't. What kind of a case did the defense actually put on? They were basically there to cross-examine and challenge the experts and issues with the dogs and issues with uh, should the jurors have been allowed to... Uh, to actually get in the boat it, itself to see how steady it was, uh, which they were allowed to do, which became an issue on appeal and may still be an issue on a writ. Now, this may be far too inside the beltway and stop me if I sound like some law professor who's forgotten what it's like to talk to people who aren't, you know, either lawyers or law students, but uh, uh, this, uh, uh, you, you know, I, I got to I got to tell you the case, as you know, and the reason why you called me, the the death verdict was reversed on appeal, in in front of the California Supreme Court, the the guilty verdict of guilt or innocence of murder was upheld. Now, um, it, that's not necessarily the end of it, and we can go into why they said there was no evidence here warranting a reversal of the conviction, but there was uh, error by the trial judge that warranted reversing the death penalty. Uh, and, and by the way, if, if you wanna know, it's because the judge was, shall we say, a bit too free and willing to exclude jurors based on the fact that those jurors in filing a, uh, a, uh, a jury form application as they were being thought of as potential jurors, uh, he threw off basically all these people who simply said, yeah, I'm opposed to the death penalty, without ever bringing them in and questioning them and finding out, because some of them, another question would be, could you find for death? And the answer was yes. So you had, I think there were a total of 13 jurors who answered, opposed to the death penalty, but answered in a way that suggested, but if the law requires that I would follow it. Mind you, that's out of 1,500, a jury pool of 1,513. But the exclusion of those 13 is the grounds improperly. You can't just do that. You can't just take people because the Supreme Court has told us for decades, who knows if they'll still continue to say it, uh, but for decades they've told us the whole point of a jury trial is to get a reasonable, fair cross-section of the public. And that has to include some people who are opposed to the death penalty and those people who are in favor of the death penalty. Uh, but the case isn't over yet uh, because as this is the it really inside the Beltway stuff. One proceeds to higher courts after a conviction in one of two separate ways. One way is the way almost everyone thinks of it. It's called an appeal. That's what the California Supreme Court has already ruled on. An appeal looks at the actual record of the trial and decides whether there was an error or not, and if that error was harmful or harmless to the case. There's a second way in which you move as a defense lawyer on appeal. You file what is known as a writ. A writ is a second separate filing. And in a writ, you go outside the court record and you do things like the, you know, what, what jurors may have said to each other during the deliberation process. 
Did jurors get together together when they shouldn't have? Did anybody make up their mind before the, before the end of the trial and decide they were only going to stick with it? Uh, well, you know, and it, it hasn't been argued in this case. Was there a problem with the defense lawyer? Did they not investigate something or not call witnesses that they should have called? That has not yet been decided by the California Supreme Court. And even if they do uphold the conviction after the writ process, the defendant has the right to go into federal court if they think, or at least they have an argument at least, that the defendant was in some way denied some constitutional right uh, by way of the court trial and the proceedings. Something like, shouldn't a change of venue have been granted? Um, maybe it's inappropriate to exclude jurors even in the guilt phase who don't like the death penalty. Maybe that should have been enough to reverse the case. So this case is not over yet. There may be a lot more to it to come. I've sat in on cases where, you know, guilty verdicts I thought were questionable when, when the jury had returned a guilty verdict. I, I've also sat in on cases, obviously, where a not guilty was rather surprising. Uh, I, you know, uh, uh, be, be, the O.J. Simpson case may be kind of unique in the annals of American jurisprudence, but yeah, it, this case was, I don't know if anybody but his family uh, uh, didn't think that they were probably going to come back with this. I actually thought, I, I, you know, as a, as a guy who's taught criminal law for, you know, it was one of the first things I taught in law school, the course of criminal law uh, for 30 years now, I, um, I, you know, I thought there might be a slight issue as to premeditation and deliberation. I thought that the one chance Peterson had was um, that there wasn't a lot of evidence that he'd planned this. And if he hadn't planned it, there was an argument, perhaps the prosecution hadn't proved that he had, that premeditation and deliberation beyond a reasonable doubt, or at least I thought there was a slight chance you might get a couple of jurors who might wonder whether it was enough. I mean, I think it was enough to uphold the conviction, but I thought it was not overwhelming evidence uh, that was offered about a planning of it. So I didn't know if any jurors might get stuck on that, but when they didn't, it, it didn't surprise me at all. It didn't surprise me that they weren't stuck on it. My only, my, I, I did not really think there was, and you know, I'm sure Mark will probably hate me for this, but uh, we're no longer trying as guilt or innocence here. We're the way, you know, on appeal, as I always like to, uh, at trials, we try the defendant on appeal. We try the judge most of the time. That's what we're doing on appeal. We're looking whether there were any mistakes made. Sometimes you're trying the jury to see whether they acted inappropriately uh, doing anything. Uh, I, you know, uh, uh, did, they, did they, as I said, take votes when they shouldn't have? Did they get together in small uh, cabals and try to, try to plan things during lunch? That actually happened in a very famous high-profile trial I also covered years ago, the Heidi Fleiss uh, Beverly Hills Madam trial. Uh, the, uh, uh, the jurors... Um, actually went out and during lunch, during deliberations, they would like sit in groups of like four or something and then they'd work out strategy for what they wanted to do. And you can't do that. You, you got to do everything together. Um, so that case was actually reversed. And actually, I was the reason why it was reversed uh, because I, I was on a, I was on a sh TV show commenting on the trial, which I'd watched with the forewoman of the jury. And I'd mentioned this sort of thing to her and said, oh, I didn't realize that was wrong. And she contacted the, the, the judge. You know, and, uh, and, the, and the judge said, that's not enough to reverse. Then it went up on appeal and it got reversed. Um, 
Heidi Fleiss and I were then on a, a, a program together and she said she owed me one. I, I said, please don't say that in public. Um, please, please don't say that. I teach at a Jesuit law school, please. So as it stands right now, um, Scott Peterson's conviction uh, stands, but the um, death penalty uh, has been overturned. And uh, it could, they obviously, uh, technically, the, um, the DA could retry the penalty phase of the case, couldn't he? Are they really going to retry the penalty phase of this trial? Uh, it, uh, the present governor, who won't be governor forever, obviously, uh, has said he's not going to allow any death penalties during his tenure. Are we going to see death penalty cases uh, go to fruition? Are we going to see executions again in California? If we don't, if you had a new jury seated to redo the penalty phase, which they have the absolute right to do the prosecution, you'd have to really redo the trial for them. You'd have to show the amount of evidence, the way the murder was conducted. This could go on for a very lengthy period of time at considerable taxpayer expense. Now, the money is probably not the biggest thing, but you do have to wonder, would it simply be kind of a pyrrhic victory to go back and get a death penalty verdict in this case, if it looks like that God knows when the next time will be when the state of California will be executing anybody. And even if they do, how many years will it take to get through the federal writs on this case before um, the new death penalty, you know, go back up again to the California court, and then go into the federal system, not only in the guilt or innocence, but on the second, on the second death penalty verdict. So one, one does wonder the efficacious uh, of, of trying this case a second time. Wait. Even though people may cry out for it for justice, it is a question. With your bird's eye view of the, of the trial and your lifelong uh, experience in the law, what is your overall um, opinion of the trial itself? Well, well for a long time, well-funded, because his parents basically you know, sold everything they had to give him a defense. God knows how much money they put into it. Um, he had, a, he had good lawyers. I, I not only knew the lead defense lawyer, but some of the younger lawyers on his team had also been students of mine, and I knew them very well, and I watched them. I thought the case was, was well tried from both sides. It's not like he had incompetent counsel, which is true a surprising amount of the time, by the way. You'd be surprised how bad some lawyers are. Uh, it's very disturbing when I've watched many a trial and go, what the hell are they doing? But this was a... This was a well-tried case. My problems were a bit with the judge. It wasn't terrible, don't get me wrong. He was a retired judge who'd been assigned to this because it was gonna be a long-term case. And I thought that, um, um, as, you know, I, I thought that he tended to have a bit of a bias towards the prosecution, which might've come out, I'm not, not, I'm not I'm, you know, everybody can show their, their bias. I thought it came out a bit in the jury selection process, which turned out to have overturned the the death penalty conviction it wasn't a badly tried case. I, I had, I had a few years before that had been present for most of the, um, the trial in in, Bold, in Denver, Colorado, of Timothy McVeigh, where the prosecuting attorney was a young lawyer named uh, Merritt Garland, and um, <laughs> and the judge was was absolutely spectacular. He was wonderful. Uh, it was a spectacular job of, of being a jurist, as was the judge, I thought, who did the preliminary hearing 
in the Scott Peterson, Lacey Peterson trial. I thought he had done a superb job of handling the preliminary hearing. I was kind of almost disappointed only because the, the judge who'd done the preliminary hearing, I thought, in my opinion, had done such a flawless job. And I occasionally would see some things I could, I could argue with the trial judge who tried the actual case itself. Uh, so a, a variety of judges, long trial, you never know quite what you're gonna get or, or what they're gonna rule at any given point. That it's the rare, it's the rare judge and jury who don't begin a case by assuming the defendant's guilty. Uh, I remember once asking uh, in the middle of voir dire, which is the jury questioning where lawyers are sometimes allowed to ask some questions of the jurors before I was, we were picking them. I, I asked a juror because the, the whole case, it was just gonna be prosecution witnesses. I wasn't gonna put on any witnesses myself. It was just gonna be one of those trials where I just attacked their witnesses. So I asked one, one very nice lady, it seemed on the jury, I said, now, now you don't think just because a witness takes the stand and says they're gonna tell the truth that absolutely everything they say will actually be what happened, that they won't, you don't actually believe they'll, they'll always be telling the truth and be correct in whatever they say. And her response still to this day, I'll, I'll never forget it was, why of course they will. And I said, wait a minute, you think that all witnesses tell the truth? And she just said, well, of course. And then she looked over to the bench and said, I'm sure the judge would not allow them to testify if they weren't going to tell the truth. I have no doubt that you have other interesting anecdotal stories about uh, your work in the courtroom and cross-examining interesting witnesses. Um, I was having dinner with Mark Garagos at his, at his home once some years ago, and we were sitting outside trading old war stories about with a bunch of other famous trial lawyers. I'm not a famous trial lawyer, I'm a professor. And uh, they were talking about it and somebody actually said, man, this guy, he reminded me of Eddie Haskell, the way he testified, you know? You know? And, I, and I turned to Mark, who had made the statement, and I said, did you actually ever cross-examine Eddie Haskell? And he looked at me and said, no, of course not. What, what do you mean that I ever cross-examine Eddie Haskell? I said, you know, the guy who played Eddie Haskell, for people who are too young and don't know, that's a kid on Leave it to Beaver who was, spoke so, so disingenuously. Hello, Mrs. Cleaver, you look lovely today. You know, you could never believe a word the kid said. And uh, I said, look, when he lost his, when, when Leave it to Beaver went off the air, he needed a job because he, you know, and he became a policeman. And uh, he became very successful as a policeman at LAPD. He rose to uh, being a, a detective sergeant. And... Uh, he was one of the two witnesses I had in this trial. There were two separate burglaries the defendant was charged with. Uh, there was a rookie kid who'd been on the force maybe less than six months when he made the arrest in one of them. And there was the actor, the, the policeman who had played Eddie Askell as a kid. And he'd been on the force for 13 years, 15 years, very accomplished policeman. And I cross-examined the two of them. And I had the, the kid who'd been on the force for, for six months, I had him sweating. It was literally the first time he'd ever testified. And Eddie Haskell's, the, the lawyer, uh, you know, the kid who uh, was now longer a kid, the sergeant, he gave his testimony. Jury goes out, jury comes back, guilty on one count, not guilty on the other. They had, him, they had him to rights on both. And we went and talked to the jurors afterwards. And the prosecutor said, well, why'd you do this? He said, well, that kid, the, the, the young officer, oh, what a wonderful young boy. I mean, he, he spoke with such heart. We know he was, he was shaking, but it was just because he was nervous because he was so young. But that other policeman, oh my God, the way he testified, we couldn't believe a word he said.
Now, before I let you go, I do uh, want to give you an opportunity to talk about a book you wrote, and it's uh, technically not a legal book, which is it's different. Uh, but the title of the book is Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. So tell us about the book. I wrote this book, which was a, 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 a book about my mother's, um, you know, escape uh, from a death camp. Uh, true story. Uh, I, I didn't discover the story until years after she died. And I blended that with what it was like growing up as a child. And it, it is a book that I spent four years researching and four years rewriting so that I don't believe there is anything in it that isn't clear and easily understood. In fact, one very nice critic, not, not a reader, it would have been nice of a reader, said it, but one very nice critic actually said, if you only have time to read one book about the Holocaust, make it this one. Great. And um, uh, I, uh, because it, it is my mother's life and my life with her spanned um, the issues raised from reparations to the camps to slave labor to what it's life for for the life of a person afterwards um, and uh, I'm it is my life's work and being a, a lifetime bachelor with no kids I honestly and sincerely believe it is the only thing that I will leave behind of value I am the only surviving child my brother and sister did not escape Auschwitz they were lost in the camps they were killed uh, gassed um, so, uh, the title is left to the mercy of a rude stream. And I, I, sometimes it's too bad. I, I like Shakespeare so much. I should have probably, you know, done something like, you know, getting even with Hitler. That should have been the title of the book. That was my mother's attitude in life. That's why she lived as long as she did. The doctors were very surprised that at the end of her life, she hadn't, she hadn't died years before because she, she wasn't in great shape, but she had such strong will. And she would say to me, don't worry, Stanley, I'm not dying because then the Germans would have to stop paying me the checks every month, and I'm not going to give them that satisfaction. <laughs> well, Professor Goldman, if you ever give up law, which I certainly hope you don't, you have a new career as a Borscht-built comedian, and I have some contacts that I should hook you up with. So I do, again, seriously want to thank uh, Professor Stanley Goldman for spending time with us, sharing his expertise on the uh, Lacey Peterson-Scott Peterson trial. And I'd also like to thank Michael Fleeman for his participation today. Uh, his book, Lacey, Inside the Lacey Peterson Murder, can be found at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other great bookstores. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope it's been informative and interesting, and I hope that you will share it with your friends. Uh, again, Murder Most Foul can be found on uh, most podcast platforms, and you can also uh, just go to my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. <laughs>